Hello everybody and welcome to our final installment in our Bible study series in the book of Job. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to the book of James chapter 1. As you are turning there, for context for the final chapter of Job, we've heard God's last speech. But while God's answer to Job is something that Job understands, wholeheartedly. He understands it. He accepts it. He even apologizes for, uh, well, speaking where he did not know the truth of the matter. But we are blessed to see many summaries, little tidbits in the New Testament that St. James and the author of Hebrews and others give us. Hear the word of our Lord from James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now as we turn to Job chapter 42, which is the final chapter, I want to review something. There are five reasons, generally speaking, why God either permits or inflicts suffering. He can be using it to perfect you, to correct you, to inspect you, or to direct you. It's the main four that we know of. The fifth is if there is something else going on, God acting according to his own purposes. So let's go through those four again that we are most aware of. When God inspects us, through pain. He tests us, as we see with Abraham in the binding of Isaac. Let no one say that Abraham had an easy time of expressing and holding to his faith while he was told, raise the knife and slaughter your son. It was a test, and it was painful, even though he passed and received his son back without his son having to die. God can correct us through suffering. As we see with the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, God can and does punish sinners. Even in this life, we understand as good Christians that God does finally punish the wicked if they do not repent with eternal hellfire. But even in this world, in this life, even believers he will correct through discipline and chastening, as we read in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. But speaking of Hebrews 12, God also perfects us through our suffering. When we go through these trials and we become stronger and more steadfast than we were at the beginning through it, when we yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness through our suffering, we understand that at least in part, 
what we underwent is God making us more like Christ. To paraphrase Luther, our Lord gave Jesus Christ a crown of thorns. Why should we expect a crown of roses? We are drawn closer to Jesus through our sufferings, whether or not it is something we can necessarily recognize in that hour. And finally, number four, to direct us, we do see times in which God will permit or inflict suffering on our part in our experience to make sure a greater good happens. God permitted Joseph, the son of Jacob, to suffer a horrible fate for a time when he was first sold into slavery by his brothers and then thrown into jail because of Potiphar's scheming wife. This is a man who went from enslaved to destitute, lonely, and abandoned. But God used this to save millions and millions of lives during the Egyptian famine. There are times in which we suffer. And it could be God taking the opportunity to direct us to something better, a greater good. Him inspecting us, testing us, not tempting, but testing to see and experience, is this believer that loves me, does he truly mean it? To correct us, to discipline us away from a sinful habit, to get our attention and to perfect us, getting us closer to the image of Christ. In the case of Job, it was to direct him, certainly, towards a greater good. As the book of Job, potentially, I believe it is the first book of Scripture to be written. This is the opening letter to the Bible. This would not be here if Job had not been directed to suffer. God, in a certain way, was inspecting Job as there was a cosmic bet going on between God and the devil. Job unwittingly found himself being tested. Does he truly love God enough to accept whatever God permits to happen in his life? And the answer, as we see in the first and second chapters, is most certainly Job did accept it he did have a hard time with it, though, and he expressed this in some quite visceral terms. And yes, as we see over the course of this book, Job's character does become better. We see the man become more sanctified over time. And as we start in chapter 42, we hear from Job himself as he answers the Lord after hearing God's speech. A reminder, God spoke about Leviathan, a wicked, ugly, evil, serpentine representation of the devil. He is called a dragon. He is called a serpent. Just like Revelation chapter 12, this is he whom God is the only one we can trust to defeat. Upon hearing this, Hear the word of our Lord from the final chapter of Job. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and so far the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy, and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had fourteen thousand sheep, six thousand camels, one thousand yoke of oxen, and one thousand female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Job starts his response saying, I know. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This will lead some commentators to highlight God's sovereignty over all things and to conclude that this is the point of what Job heard from God. I believe we characterized it a few weeks ago as God telling Job, I'm big, you're small, I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm strong, you're weak, shut up. But as we go through God's speech to Job, his answer to Job's questions, we couldn't help but notice that almost everything God says to Job is a gentle rebuke that highlights God's compassion. God says, I created this world. Everything that you need for crops, everything you need for your sustenance, it came from 
me, the one who created this whole world for humanity. And all of those animals, I know their situation. I watch the deer give birth to make sure they're okay. I know the ostrich personally. He highlights that if God knows all of these animals with such intimacy that he is willing to talk about their personalities, how much more does God know what Job is going through? And so he talks about his deliverance. Job, there are dangerous creatures out there. Have you considered the behemoth? The terrifying creature that even I, dear Job, approach with my sword. The implication there being that the behemoth is so big that it might get too big for its britches and suffer the same fate as the sea monster Rahab. But then in the full chapter on Leviathan, God highlights a threat to Job's existence. The great wicked and proud serpent Leviathan. Again, most likely a picture of the devil. When we read from Job chapter 40, verse 14, 13 and 14, God says, Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. When Job answers God, he does not say, Oh, I get it. You're bigger and better than me, so I should be quiet. You know, this is something that I asked for you to not do, to not just terrify me with your might. And besides, you know, Elihu already said some of this stuff, and all my friends said some of this stuff already. We all know that you're big and powerful. You're the creator. You are the sovereign one. I think if God really truly meant, I'm sovereign, you're a pipsqueak, I doubt that Job would have been so pensive and penitent in his response. To the contrary, when he says no purpose of yours can be thwarted, how can we understand that without understanding all of the purpose of salvation and mercy and love that God has expressed in his answer to Job? Job says, Yes, you can, you can do all things for me. No purpose of yours for me can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with a knowledge? As God began his speech, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Wonderful. Fantastic. This is so Good, what you're saying to me. Job tells God what you are saying is so right, so wonderful, I had no clue. Imagine how painful it must have been for Job to go through life devoted to God, loving God, being faithful to God, enjoying God's blessings, but not taking into account the fact that God was for him. But now Job knows him. He knows this God that has said to his soul, I love you, Job. I am your deliverer. I can save you. Trust in me. And Job says this is something too wonderful for him. It's like, 
I don't think any of us would respond any different. Can you imagine if Christ himself appeared in your room right now or wherever you are and said, I know you. I know what you're going through. And I want to let you know that I love you and I care. What we wouldn't give to see that, to embrace Christ in that moment. Job has this. And he says it is too wonderful for him. <laughs> too much grace. I can't take it all. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. You asked me these questions, dear God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I am sorry that I didn't even think of this. I'd heard of you. Job, of course, being a prophet, as I've argued from James chapter 5, he's heard of God. He's been worshiping God for a long time, but how thick must I be to where I require to see God's actions in the whirlwind to finally get this? How could I have not understood this given how much God has provided for me up until this point in my life? How come it took losing everything for me to remember or even to learn for the first time that my God is for me and that he cares, this mighty deliverer? I've been relying on him as my provider, true, but I haven't seen him as my savior. I'm going to apologize to God because this is too good. He met my anger and my questioning with compassion. That is Job's response to God. I repent. I repent of this thickness and foolishness on my part. Now God spoke to Job, potentially. A little bit more. It says in verse 7, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, in his speech perhaps, that is what the author is referring to, or maybe God had said something after Job's final response that Job did not feel was necessary to include in the text. He's more interested in mentioning what God says to Eliphaz the Temanite. The Lord had spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Very important verse next. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now we've made the case that Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad are wise men. They are something like theologians of their day. And much of what they say is quoted both in the Old and New Testament. It is cited in the Psalms. It is brought up everywhere. And for the last chapter, we hear God say, 
you were wrong. You were absolutely dumb as a box of rocks wrong on this one. But does God say that every single word that they said was wrong? No. Otherwise, we do not have law and gospel. Eliphaz's message to Job was, what's happening to you very well may be on account of your sin. You need to repent of it, but we worship a merciful God. If you go to him, he can restore you, forgive you, and bring you back. God does not deny that dynamic. But what he does deny is that Job was being punished. We mentioned God can direct us, inspect us, correct us, and perfect us through our sufferings. And perhaps he has some other reason for our pain that we cannot understand quite yet. But in Job's case, he was not being corrected. He was not being punished nor disciplined here. All three of Job's friends got that part of this dead wrong. But note here, God tells them to make a sacrifice, a burnt offering, a sin offering to receive absolution. He doesn't kill them. Certainly, if they had blasphemed in a horrible fashion, God may very well have slaughtered them in front of Job the same way he slaughtered Nadab and Abihu. He could have afflicted them with life-ruining leprosy the way he afflicted King Uzziah with leprosy when he burned incense in the temple. A big no-no, by the way. He received leprosy because he was a king, not a priest. God could have destroyed them in this moment. But him telling them, go make offerings, go make burnt offerings for me and have Job pray for you is a sign that God accepts them and loves them. He does not do this for somebody that he intends to destroy, don't you think? Does he go to somebody who has said something wrong about him that says a heresy? soul murder or somebody so lifted up with pride like King Herod that their bowels explode and worms are eating their stomach from the inside out. Don't you think that that would have happened to them if they were so stinking ugly and wrong in every single word that they said that God's anger burned that way? No, to the contrary, I believe that though God is upset with his three friends, especially for cutting off compassion to Job and eventually just hurling accusations at him, it seems to me that God still loves these three and accepts them. And so did Job, by the way, for he did indeed pray for his three friends. And it tells us in verse 9 that the Lord accepted Job's prayer which you do not do for people that you are going to squish. Now, why would I say that Job also accepted them? We mentioned perfecting, that we can be sanctified further through our suffering. Note here in verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. 
How did this start? When did this happen? Verse 11, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Don't get worried about that word evil in the Hebrew. It just means disaster. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Verse 11 states, All his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. This includes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar together with Job's family. All of them decide, we need to help Job. We need to help restore him. He has gone through much, and he has heard the voice of God, and even though he suffered greatly, even though he's, he held on to his integrity so tightly, God answers him, and now he is broken, repenting, sorrowful over his lack of faith in the God who loves him. Everybody hears about this. They hear about what he's went through. And his brothers and sisters who previously had ostracized him are now going up to him and giving him presents. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, these men who at one point Job had said, you are the worst friends that a man could possibly have. How dare you treat me like this? They come and help restore him. And I dare say, perhaps even young poor Elihu comes in, since the text says, all who had known him before. Perhaps even Elihu feels bad about his words that he lobbed at Job and says, I'm going to pitch in too. I'm of the opinion that Elihu had potentially ran away since he expressed uh, great fear before God started speaking. And now he returns, even though God did not speak of him when God addresses Eliphaz and his two friends. Now he returns and pitches in. Let's help Job get back on his feet. God uses all of these people as hands and feet to help Job get back to where he was and beyond. And what does Job do in response? It says they ate bread with him in his house. Job has every reason to refuse Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu from being in his house. He has every understandable human reason to keep his wife away from him, given that she was the first to assault him among humans, saying, why don't you just curse God and die, loser? But instead, he permits all of these people to come into his house and break bread with him. This is Job being sanctified such that he forgives those who wounded him. He had every human understandable reason to ostracize them, kick them out, alienate them. I remember what you said when we had that conversation after I lost everything. And now that my family's here, you're suddenly inspired to come and give me a ring and a piece of money? Forget you. No, Job does not do that. He forgives them. In the ancient Near East, to break bread with somebody was a sign of fellowship. And if there was pain in that relationship, 
Breaking bread with them was a sign that the relationship had been healed. Remember too, dear Christian, that on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to you, his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Jesus breaks bread with us, and he gives us himself, his flesh, in, with, and under the elements to bring us forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. Job, in breaking bread with all of these people who either were totally alienated from him and estranged from him as he suffered, like his family, his brothers and sisters, or victimized him, like his wife and his friends and that young man over there. He forgives them all and accepts them. And he does so, may I remind you, before they give him anything. First, they ate bread with him in his house. And then they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Job at this point is so magnanimous, so merciful and so gracious, so much has God transformed his character that he can look at everybody who hurt him as they come to him and he can say, I love you, I forgive you, come and break bread with me. Oh yes, blessed is the man who stands fast under trial. Blessed is the man who endures and is steadfast. Job is the very picture of this. Once he learns that God is for him, he is more than happy to be for everybody else and show them the same forgiveness that God showed him. To show them the same forgiveness that he witnessed God giving to his friends as they sacrificed bulls. Verse 12, then the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Of course, this means receiving double of everything that he lost, except his children. The Septuagint translation will double the amount of children that he receives back. In the Mesoretic text and other manuscripts, it says that he receives 10 children, not 20. You can believe either one, but the text highlights three daughters that Job is particularly proud of. Now, they're given precious names that to our English-speaking words, while they're not quite so precious, were confused by Jemima, what, what Job wanted pancakes that morning when she was born. No, the word Jemima is translated as uh, turtle doves. She's like a beautiful bird. Kezia for cassia or cinnamon. This is a real sweetheart. This is somebody I want to just embrace. She makes everything smell better in my presence. I love being around her. And uh, Karen Hapuk, again, not exactly an English name that we would hold to be precious, but that refers to uh, crushed up antimony. That is how women would paint their eyes or put on eyeliner in those days. This is Job saying to his third daughter, you are so beautiful 
It's like you always have makeup on. You don't need to put anything on in the morning as you're getting ready about your business. He's proud of his sons, I'm sure. The seven sons that he had. But God has so blessed him with daughters that bring him so much joy. And he has so much in his life now that Job is not only able but willing to give his daughters inheritances. Now, the standard practice, as we see with uh, the daughters of a few people in the book of Joshua and Judges, they receive inheritances to basically hold until they have a husband who can receive that inheritance and manage it. That was the way this was typically done. And of course, the firstborn has the, the right of a double portion. He has his birthright. But for Job, he has so much. He is so rich at this point that he says, you seven sons of mine, you are already fantastically rich with just a tenth of this. Or even a ninth as one of you gets a double portion. I'm going to give more to my daughters too. I'm going to give an inheritance to them as I am on my deathbed. He is that gracious at this point. He's willing to give them everything. And it says, After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Can you imagine Job, now a holy prophet of our Lord, reflecting on this on his deathbed. It's time to put in the last chapter. It has been 140 years since he lost everything, and ever since it's just been easy, wonderful, fantastic for him. He's lived a, a life that has been blessed and restored, and maybe... He wrote this last line before he took his last breath, or maybe he instructed one of his sons, I'm about to die. I want you to put in this, this very last thing about the inheritance and about how long I lived after this. But I was full of days. I saw good in my life. Not I lost everything and I'm bitter. I'm not going to hold on to that pain anymore. I saw good in my days. I was an old man full of days. That's an expression, by the way, for the patriarchs. The patriarchs died old and full of days. Job is placed at the level with this phrase of one of the patriarchs of Israel. So important is this book for our understanding, even the rest of Scripture. And we praise God that he gave us this book, that he gave us the book of Job to see and understand that no matter how much pain we go through and whether we can understand why it is happening, why it seems like evil is always victorious, or if it seems like God is an enemy in this moment, that we can trust that he is for us. For such was his answer to Job. Now, a little bit of ending matter here. We're going to be going through hard times. Chances are. I've heard one poll was taken where over 70% of Americans believe that America is in decline. She is in trouble. It is a nation 
that is under duress and is, well, fundamentally not what it should be. We're entering into a very pessimistic age and it only gets more pessimistic with each passing year every time they run polls like this. And if it's that bad for America, it's probably worse than the rest of the world, especially in the war-torn countries that we hear about every day. May God have compassion on them. But with that, having spent this long in the book of Job, we hope and pray that we shall have the same confidence in our Lord that he inspired in Job. Remember, beloved, this is what he does for you and for me. Through our pain, we are made better. We are restored. Everything that Job sees in his restoration, I cannot promise that that's going to happen to you if you are going through a hard time. But I can promise you, as the scriptures promised, that if you endure into the end, you are saved. And you go through the greatest restoration. The restoration of Job is a picture of what happens for the steadfast, whether that is in this life or in the next, potentially both. As Abraham, the sainted man, our father of the faith here, he was filthy stinking rich just about all of his life. And he still receives a high place of honor in the afterlife. He received recompense and reward in both. And I hope and pray that the same happens for you who are suffering. I hope it happens for me too. But the encouragement is that God sees you and he will not permit you to remain in the dour, painful time of suffering that you are in now. He restores, he blesses, he more than makes it up to you if you are but willing to trust in him and to hold on to his gracious, merciful, and salvific will for you. Because the message of Job, as St. James tells us quite plainly is, our Lord is merciful and compassionate for you. Amen and amen.